welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alain Benmir. Today's guest is Melissa J. Wild, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research focuses on religion, particularly the ways in which religious institutions respond to social, cultural, and demographic change. In this discussion, Melissa and Alain discuss gender inequality in women's rights and religion, and particularly the issue of birth control and reproductive rights among Christian denominations, which is also the focus of her latest book, Birth Control Battles, How Race and Class Divided American Religion. Thank you so much for taking the time, Melissa. Uh, this subject is of interest to me in particular. Um, sort of, I, I, I've been watching, you know, specifically over the years, with some focus on Jewish women in religion. But your writing is, is, is fascinating. And I also read a number of articles, quite a few. So what I did is I prepared a few questions for you, and then we can discuss it as we go. Great. Yeah. So let, let me ask you first, generally speaking, generally speaking, from your perspective, is there a common denominator in the main religions, uh, including Catholicism, Judaism, Islam, Protestant, in their treatment of women? And why religion remains deeply intertwined, as uh, quoting you, with inequality? Mm. <laughs> that those are great questions to get started with. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to have something general to start with. <laughs> sure. So you know, I would say that it is fair to characterize all major world religions as being founded in a time where patriarchal relations were much more common, right? And so um, what I try to do in my research is understand why some religious groups have changed and adopted more modern views toward women and sex and gender in general, and others have not. Um, and I would say that I, I haven't studied Islam uh, in my, my book, Birth Control Battles, really focuses on the American religious field as a whole from 1918 to 1965. So there really just weren't, a, there wasn't a lot of Muslim representation then. And so there, I don't have any Muslim groups in my sample, but I do have Catholic, Protestant and Jewish groups. Um, and I would say that what I found from that research is really that the groups that's liberalized early on the first issue that I could find associated with sex and gender did so for reasons that I think most people would not expect and um, did so for reasons that were largely disconnected from women's rights. So, uh, and instead really had to do with troubling things in relationship to race and class. And so that is where my argument about how religion is intertwined with inequality and why that's important and why we need to think about that more explicitly comes from. I see. So, so from your perspective, in which way, um, you know, religious institutions respond, responded to social and cultural and demographic changes, how, how these changes impacted some of these religious institutions, in which way and why? Hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I found um, in relationship to the issue of birth control, which is what my, my, my book focuses on, um, was really that 
the groups that responded that liberalized first on contraception, which was really what I was trying to um, to figure out, did so because of um, cultural and demographic changes, but not because they were um, and, and they did so actually because they had identities as progressives as well, which is something that I think is important to talk about. But the demographic and cultural changes they were responding to would not be the ones that we would think of today as being causal in relationship to, for example, creating more feminist organizations. Um, so what they were responding to was really an influx demographically of groups they saw as non-white, non-white immigrants, primarily um, Catholics from earlier from Ireland and then Italy, and then Jews from Eastern Europe. And the demographic changes that they were responding to were not only in relationship to immigration, but they were in relationship to those groups' greater fertility over white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And the implications that had for the what they saw as the country um, culturally and politically and racially. And so what I found was that it was really difficult to separate those things out Um that they would discuss the importance of, for example, manifest destiny and why the white Anglo-Saxon was important for the triumph of the U.S. over North America. Um, They would talk about that culturally. They would talk about that racially. And they would talk about that religiously all in one, sometimes one paragraph. Um, So... What I found was that it seemed that really groups were responding to a combination of threat and um, concern, and they were, but they were doing so out of an identity as progressive Americans, both because they were usually believers in the progressive social gospel movement, which I could talk about more, but also because they were eugenicists. And one of the things that I found that was the most surprising was that um, I have a sample of 31 of America's most prominent religious groups in my, in my study. Uh And I found that literally half of those groups could be characterized as strong believers in eugenics circa 1930, which I was very, I was, I knew it was a popular movement. I just didn't um, fully understand the extent to which it was popular until I started my research. I see. So do you see do you see any correlation say between advanced nation, advanced countries, say the the, the EU, um, uh, in terms of the progress they have made in their acceptance of tolerance of uh, reproductive women's right, um, or is it is it is it limited to that? Do you see that these uh, tolerance or acceptance also? goes beyond the most advanced countries, culturally speaking, scientifically speaking. So I mean, I, they are a sort of... A, a Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so what I found was that the early liberalizers, the, the, the religious groups in the United States that first embraced birth control reform, um, they did so because of this combined belief in the social gospel movement and the eugenics movement. Um, And they did so initially because they were really concerned about racial uh, change in the United States. They wanted to stop what they called race suicide from occurring. And by race suicide, they they meant the idea that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were only having on average two children and 
um, non-white immigrants, Catholics and Jews were having on average four at the time. And so they were really concerned about stopping race suicide. Mm -hmm, yeah. But by 1950, their concerns completely shifted and began to focus, as did in general contraception rights activists, and especially those people involved in researching and trying to prevent what they called the population explosion. They had really shifted to focusing on poorer countries in the world, which is what they called it. Um, so what we would call the third world, some people would call it the global south, um, you know, countries that are definitely browner and poorer than most developed nations, developing nations, whatever term you want to use to describe them. Um, their focus really became not just making contraception available around the globe, but making sure people began to use it. So it was very much um, uh, a promotion of contraception and getting people to have fewer children. And, and I was struck by the fact that that focus from 1920, really all the way through 1965, did not change. There was an explicit discussion of the fact that some groups, now which groups, did change over time. So the focus of who the focus was on did change over time. But what the focus was, which was on getting some people whose fertility was seen as less desirable than others to have fewer kids, um, that stayed consistent over time. Um, and that's where you really see the international focus grow is by was after World War II. Then they begin really trying to um, promote contraception in the poor areas in the world. And I think I didn't study the attitude toward contraception globally. Um, and I can tell you that I was, I knew that the birth control movement in the United States had strong ties to the eugenics movement. That's something that historians have long acknowledged. I just really didn't understand the extent to which those connections were so deeply in, intertwined until I did my research. And so knowing what I know now about the eugenics movement, I would, I would venture a hypothesis that the early birth control reform movements in the world were probably in places largely where the eugenics movement was strong. And so I would say most likely Great Britain, most likely Germany, and most likely the United States were the, probably the three places where the um, birth control movement took off most quickly. But I actually don't know for, um, if that's correct. So you might not want to quote me on that. No, because because um, as you, I mean, of course you know better than most people uh, what's going on right in the, here in the United States. I mean, this issue is, is intensely still debated in terms of the woman' right to for reproductive reproductive right. And uh, do you attribute that to the fact that the uh, actually the, the Protestants have been steadily moving more and more toward conservatism, that's including of course the evangelicals. Yeah. And why are they moving in that direction? To what extent that's actually impacting their views on women's reproductive rights? Yeah, I th those are great, great questions. So, you know, obviously today, that although contraception still is part of the controversy and discussion sometimes, and even recent Supreme Court cases, much more of the current debates really center around abortion, as I'm, I'm sure you and all everyone listening to this knows. Um, yeah. But so what I see my book 
doing is providing context about why some groups are more resistant to a belief in or to abortion than others. And although I really don't, I don't connect the dots in the book. And I think that that would take another really serious study to do well. Um, but what I was able to very clearly sh uh, show, I think, was that whether groups liberalized early on contraception, meaning by 1932, really determined their own identities as whether they were sexual or religious progressives, sexual, religious progressives, or conservatives, I should say. And the groups that liberalized early basically did so because they were eugenicists. But via, via generational replacement, have largely forgotten that history. I, I will, oh, yeah. be, you know, I think that that's, that's really true. Um, and, in, and as they forgot that history, they really um, embraced an identity as being religious progressives, sexual religious progressives. And sexuality became a real big focus of that. And so the same groups that liberalized on contraception in 1930, so very early, are the same religious groups that who today marry same-sex couples, have been explicitly pro-choice for the last 50 years. So um, what I'm making is more, it, it seems that it's more of a, of a path-dependent argument than necessarily a causal argument. So I don't want people to um, misinterpret my argument to be that I'm saying the groups that are pro-choice or pro-same-sex marriage, you know, are eugenicist today. That's not what I'm saying, but it's that the, a focus on eugenics, a concern about race, suicide, and racial purity in the 30s led some groups to embrace contraception openly and then embrace an identity as sexual progressives in a way that the groups who did not embrace eugenics and therefore stayed distant from the issue of contraception that they did not go through that kind of progressivizing moment in terms of sexuality. And so although I did find eventually the vast majority of religious groups in my sample did liberalize and they did so almost all of them, even the latest groups did so by the 80s. But, they, but the ones who liberalized later did so in really different ways from the ones who did so earlier. And so the, the folks who liberalized later they liberalized what I call reluctantly. So they said things and they did so with a focus on their own constituents and whether it was a, a correct religious act to use contraception rather than a focus on all of the people in the rest of the world or in the rest of the country that we want to use contraception, which is a really different um, orientation. Yeah. And so but, but so what I've been struck by, just to finish answering your question, and I'm sorry, such a long-winded answer. Um, yeah. What I've been struck by oh, is no, that no, it's perfectly okay. yeah. <laughs> the sides really haven't changed. So even though my research started basically 100 years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, today, the same groups who were critical of early birth control reform a hundred years ago are still the same groups who are critical of same sex marriage and abortion and some contraception today. Um, they're the most conservative yeah. uh, religious group sexually. And I, so I think, so the argument is really that they didn't, they, they did not embrace early contraceptive re reform. They didn't do so for what they saw as morally very just reasons. And th that I think most people today would agree were morally just 
when you understand that the people who liberalized early on contraception did not do so because they cared about women's rights, when you understand that actually groups were explicitly anti-feminist, but still pushed the legalization of contraception because they wanted to reduce the fertility of of non-white groups in the United States, you understand that actually the groups that remained conservative were doing so because they rejected eugenics because they saw it, they saw race, racism as a problem. Um, but then now, a hundred years later, we've lost sight. We, 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 we forgot about this. In fact, I, I don't even know if we even knew about it systematically. Um, and instead we see just them. And it's easy to see if you look at just the two endpoints People, some groups were progressive, some groups were conservative, and those groups are still progressive and conservative today, right? But the point is, if you don't look at how they develop stances on different issues, you 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 miss the mechanisms and the causes of different kinds of progressivism and conservatism over time. All right. You know, what, what's bothering to me, however, this, um, whereas the, uh, the conservatives here in the United States uh, are against abortion as the, the debate continues to be, and in in um, in some ways are also are, are racist in the sense that they are anti anti black anti Hispanic. On the other and while while they are promoting and uh, rejecting uh, abortion, but they also know that if they cannot discriminate in terms of who can have who cannot have the abortion, and then but then. That is in itself is allowing the very the communities that is the, the the people of color to continue to have more children, even though they are uh, in fact against or do not want to see this uh, exponential growth of of people of color. Uh, how how do you how do you reconcile that with the you know with because this is becoming more more political as well. Mm-hmm. So, how do they reconcile that contradiction within the position they have been taking all along? Well, I mean, one of the things that I definitely have learned is certainly at the individual level, people are p- capable of living with contradictions, right? Uh, sociologists, we know that. Um, but one of the, the things that I really like about studying religious groups is that they do take it take resolving contradictions very seriously. And you can see internal, um, what I call, legitimacy concerns working where people don't like to have uh, a statement on something that would not mesh with a statement on something else. Um, Which I do think is where this kind of sexual progressivism or conservatism as an identity comes from partly. Um, But I, you know, what you're asking, I think essentially boils down to if, more people of color, more women of color get abortions than white women, which is which is the case for sure. Um, and if people who are against abortion also tend to be less racially progressive, which is true from the data, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but it is also true. Um, why wouldn't they support abortion if it would, uh, you know, if it would go along with their racial interests, right? That's, I think, what basically what you're exactly. asking. Um, and I think, exactly. on the one hand, there certainly are uh, white supremacist groups who ha- who are aware of those facts and have and say nothing about abortion and they're, they're fine with it. Um, on the other hand, um, I think there's a lot 
there is n- the the I my this I'm completely speculating here, but I think the movements, the pro-life movement is pretty disconnected from the white Christian nationalist movement. Now there is overlap, but I think the people yeah, you're gonna yeah. see at pro-life rallies are not at all the same kind of people you're gonna see at white Christian nationalist rallies. Um, at least there, you know, there may be a Venn diagram overlap, but it's not that it's not great. And I think, in fact, they would often disagree with each other. So I think that's one of the the challenges of predictive social science right now of research when it comes to politics and these issues is really figuring out which issues are more important and to whom and, and, and why do they vote the way they do? And that's something that I've been working on in my contemporary, my much more contemporary research. Um, I unfortunately don't have any answers yet. I'm waiting for the survey to be fielded in the time of COVID. But. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so let me, let me switch a little bit. Let me ask you this, you know, the, I mean, religion generally, uh, promote, you know, uh, uh, ethical, uh, ethical uh, has, I mean, the whole thrust of religion is to promote, uh, it has an ethical ca- compass, so to speak. And, and, um, uh, and the same token, that is, while they hold on to this, um, uh, at the same token, they are still um, perpetuating the, the oppression of women, uh, which is fundamentally, you know, is against religion in terms of where religion stands, in terms of ethics, and morals. So they have in that bo- both ways. On the other hand, they proclaim, uh, they promote um, uh, morals and, and ethics. And on the other hand, they're deliberately perpetuating the oppression of women. Uh, how, how, how do they reconcile that in their mind? Um, and, and, and interestingly enough, women are becoming more and more religious. I don't know if you agree with that premise. Actually, more and more women become religious, in spite of the fact that being discriminated against by the um, the, the, the leadership, the religious leadership. And this is this has really been puzzling to me for some time. <laughs> that is, on the one hand, they are more, more oppressed; on the other hand, they're becoming more and more religious. Yeah. So Do you agree I would say, with this premise? Yeah, I would say that women. Um... There isn't a lot of evidence that women are becoming more religious. There is a lot of evidence that women are more religious than men and have been for a long time and are in, and that is increasingly the case um, within certain caveats. So that's particularly in the United States and particularly among Christians, that women are the ones who at least by many measures attend church more often, um, pray more often, that kind of thing. Um, you know, how do how do women who are religious reconcile the fact that they're engaged in patriarchal religious institutions uh, individually? I don't know. And I have, because <laughs> I have not, I have not studied that uh, at an individual level. I can say, um, you know, I was raised Catholic and I can say that um, certainly my biggest problem with the Roman Catholic church is still it's, essentially patriarchal stance when it comes to women. I I feel like I can say that in a way that is, but that's, um, 
that's personal, you know, that's not sociological as much as that's just my own view. And that's being, and that's even within the fact that like, I love Pope Francis. I think he's awesome as a, as a leader of the Catholic church compared to other options. Um, but still it's a patriarchal religious institution and to be, and you basically have to just, you have to pick your battles. I think, and I think women do. And I think that uh, the women who remain religious probably do that on a, on a daily basis. The other thing I would say is there are people who've studied this when it comes to other religious institutions. So, um, you know, uh, there have been studies of women of piety in Islamic countries and um, cautioning, uh, I'm sure you know Mahmoud's work on this, um, against seeing women, for example, um, Muslim women as oppressed, right? That just because you wear a hijab does not mean that you are oppressed. It might mean that you have decided to reject modern notions of femininity that hypersexualize women, which I actually completely agree with. I can see how that's um, reality. At the same time, I can also see how that's still, you're trying to reject one notion of femininity by wrapping yourself in another, right? That is also patriarchal. So I think it really comes down to um, very complicated things associated with gender and uh, equality that I see it as religious institutions being a, uh, something that institutionalized norms a long, long time ago and therefore where you can see much more direct conflict, but it's not it's not unique, right? It comes from the social structure. And so um, there are remnants of it even out, you know, that are non-religious. I don't know. Did I answer your question? Yeah, you know, you, you, yeah, yeah, well, yes, I agree. But I wanted to ask you something related to Catholicism because, because um, uh, you, you, fo you, you have, you focus quite a bit on that. Um, how, how do you see now the church, the Catholic Church? Actually, it's like it has and continued to struggle with the, with, the, with women' right, question of reproductive right. Where do you see that going for in terms of the Catholic uh, Church at this at this juncture? Because this is this this argument still got ongoing. So I th I think yeah. To pre it's tough. It's really a difficult thing to 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 predict. But I would say, um, it's going to take another council. So my first book was on Vatican II and the Roman Catholic Church, and the question was why and how did such so many progressive religious changes happen at the council? But more importantly, why did some reforms happen and others? Why did some pass and others fail? And the one that the big failure that I studied was birth control reform at Vatican II as well. Um, and what I learned from my study of the council was that I think anything that is seen as a massive, massive change, massive reorientation, it's not that popes can't introduce changes. They certainly can, but they don't tend to stick the way that changes that are introduced in councils that require the agreement of the whole church, the whole episcopate, the, the, all of the bishops and theologians and cardinals, et cetera all members of the hierarchy agreeing on, or at least a majority of them voting to approve. Um, so while you can identify pressure points and you can identify interests and concerns and the way in which they vary around the world, and you certainly could do that with the Roman Catholic Church, 
And I could give you examples of different sorts of pressure points that I think could come together to create um, support for, for example, contraception. Um, it is it is somewhat hard to predict how those alliances would end up um, lining up in a in a sort of council voting situation. But what I can tell you is, I think should there be another council, I think there will be three things on the table that will be very important. Uh, it will be women and whether they can be priests and full members of the the episcopate. I think. The other issue that will be on the table will be priestly celibacy. Do Roman Catholic priests need to be, you know, celibate in order to be priests? And that's already, there's already a back door open for, you can have married priests um, who've converted, who were married previously. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that will open. And then the issue of contraception. And those are, I think, the big three. And then homosexuality, I think, is is probably the fourth. I think... um, I think there's really a question as to whether the Roman Catholic Church would prefer to allow non-celibate priests or female priests. Um, I think they may go for married men before they allow women who are celibate as priests. Um, because they're already doing that, right? There's precedence well, for that. Yeah, in, in this regard, you know, to, to, you know the, the current Pope is considered to be rather very progressive. Uh, to what extent he, from your perspective, has been able to advance some of the changes necessary in order to, to quote unquote, modernize the Catholic Church? You know, I've I actually mean, allow yeah, it's it to a... sort of meet meet the current the current uh, so, socioeconomic demographic changes that taken place. Um, uh, specifically in areas where there is a concentration of Catholics. Yeah, you know, I see, I see the Pope as some a leader for sure, and someone who can. But most importantly, at least within the last decade, I would say it. He's a leader who um, affects more the tenor of the Church and its focus than it do, than he, than he does really the laws or the doctrine even i'm not saying the pope can't change doctrine but sociologically thinking back on when major catholic doctrine doctrinal changes happen it really seems to be um more effectively done in councils and so i would say if pope francis wants to have a lasting effect on the roman catholic church lasting in terms of progressivizing it then he should call a council. Now, if he does call a council, hmm. and of course this is all completely now, like it would have to be a remote council <laughs> at a time in COVID. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's not likely, right? Uh, I mean, they certainly can't have, I mean, the average age of the ro- average Roman Catholic bishop is above 80, or at least it certainly was when I was doing my research. So you certainly can't have them all sitting next to each other in the, t- today. But, um, a council where the different people who would like to see contraception liberalized uh, is would be necessary in order to convince the skeptics that it was something, for example, that really should happen. So I'm thinking, um, you know, there there is a lot of interest in the Catholic Church being able to promote and even there is pressure 
for example, for the Catholic Church to support the use of condoms in Africa as a way of combating AIDS. Um, I could see that interest align with interests in developed countries about, you know, allowing contraception, that it being a, an important thing for women's health care and women's reproductive rights. Um, I, do, I don't see the Catholic Church ever changing its stance on abortion. That seems to me to be a non-negotiable. Um, I, I, I could be wrong, but just I would say sociologically, there's there doesn't seem to be any any strong pressure points for that. Um, and, but I do, cause I think there's, I think what people fail to recognize is that what really pushes religious institutions to change are serious legitimacy concerns. And those have to be, those have to be communicated in ways that those religious institutions understand. And I, and what really I found was a very effective at Vatican II was those, those, the most compelling legitimacy concerns actually come from other religious leaders that other religious leaders, other leaders Mm -hmm. of other religious institutions, when they can express their concerns in a way that is understandable and seen as compassionate to the religious leaders in question, that's when it seems to me that real changes happen in religious institutions. And, um, you know, it is hard to, to, there are religious leaders who would argue that pro-choice uh, laws and, and beliefs are key to being a compassionate religious institution, but that they're the, they're the vast minority. Whereas, so at Vatican II, one of the things that really forced the Roman Catholic Church to liberalize on uh, the issue of religious freedom was that Protestants just continued to push the fact that the Catholic Church was being a hypocrite that where they were in the majority, they wanted to be the state religion, but where they were in the minority, they did not want a state religion. And, and so the, the Protestants were very legitimately arguing that that was a a hypocritical stance on the part of the Catholic church. And ultimately the Catholic church Mm -hmm. completely changed its doctrine and argues now that the best form of government is one that allows people to worship as, as they please, regardless of the, what, who is the majority and who is the minority which gave them a lot of um, freedom and legitimacy in, on the world stage. Right. So that, so then the the Pope was first invited to make a statement at the UN. Right. So, so I guess this is a very long winded way of me saying, I can see those pressures existing when it comes to contraception for a variety of reasons. Whereas for abortion, I think many religious leaders see the issue of abortion as one that's just, perhaps they could be, they could come about the legal views, but the, the kind of the moral legitimacy argument is a really difficult one um, to convince religious leaders of. So, 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 you know, obviously, you know, we know the, the position of the Catholic church in this regard in terms of, uh, um, uh, whereas, Women, including, and say, I'm, I'm just focusing on the, on the Catholic women. They are practicing reproductive you know, family planning, right. which is, in principle, you might say, is against the preaching of the church itself. Yes. So, so yes. how do women, Catholic women, we are one, one of them, and and how do you explain that? How do they live with this contradiction themselves? 
as women. You know, it is if I so I that's why I think that the Catholic Church probably could be pushed to finally liberalize on contraception if there was a council because essentially the laity have decided that its stance on contraception is illegitimate, right? 98% of practicing Catholics in the United States are currently or have at another point used artificial means of contraception on surveys. So, I mean, it is a, a law it is a doctrine that's completely disregarded and it's like almost no other really. Um, I, I don't know yeah. how it's, how I think that the only way to explain that kind of massive rejection of doctrine on the part of religious individuals is really that they must, they must separate that doctrine from the rest of their religion. And they basically say, you know, it was made possible by changes after Vatican II where bishops and, and theologians said, listen, we're asking you, though, you can use in good conscience, you can do this. And then the reality, um, there hasn't been a lot of sanctioning, right, of it, of small families or anything like that. So I think that that's, that's but I, do, I mean I don't see I don't see a, a Catholic movement the women movement uh, pushing for and I mean you can tell me otherwise because I'm sure you know a lot more about this I don't see a Catholic women actually in on mass demanding a change and the change actually is, is being done quietly within the family or within specific churches am I right in making that assumption? Making the assumption that uh, about what about what change? There's there's no there's no women movement Catholic women movement demanding uh, official changes in the church's policy in connection with reproductive rights in terms of contraception in terms of family planning and all of that. You, you agree, I agree with you. I mean, this probably initially needs to be dealt with. The council can deal with these issues. Yeah, I mean but there are the fact there that are movements. Like in almost any religion, you can find um, groups that are challenging challengers who are arguing for change, right? You can find um, so there are groups of pro-choice Catholics, there are groups of homosexual Mormons, there are you know there are groups of or of uh, Orthodox homosexual Jews in in Israel even who are who argue for yes um, yes yeah. Right, that their institutions should, should change. But it doesn't seem to me that they're having any specific impact, specifically when it comes to, even in, in Israel, when it comes to the religious, the Orthodox Jews, or when it comes to the Catholic Church, there's some similarities there. That is, the, the church or the synagogue in this respect is resisting and resisting rather successfully. Right. So, so there are maybe groups that are raising their voices. But I'm, I don't see significant progress made in this area. Do you see otherwise? No, I think um, I think that those challenger groups, which is what they're usually called, um, it's very hard to operationalize to measure the effect of those groups existing um, because it's you can't really get the counterfactual. So. If there are, for example, Orthodox 
homosexual Orthodox Jews who are arguing that you can be an Orthodox Jew and be gay, right? Um, and they're pushing for that kind of acceptance and they're coming up against a lot of resistance. You can measure, you know, you can measure change over time about views over homosexual, uh, views of homosexuality, for example, and in certain populations, but actually connecting the dots and saying that, you know, these people are becoming more progressive in any, any way, shape or form because of these challenger groups. That's, that's a really tough, that's a very tough causal argument to make, especially because those challenger groups come from the fact that society has become more progressive on these issues, right? They, they exist because there has been an opening up in some other space. Um, and so, and then the counterfactual, the Orthodox Jewish organization that doesn't have any challenger groups that can remain pristine that, you know, you don't have that either because there are these, because there is so much overlap globally and internationally, and then even within, uh, you know, smaller communities. So um, I think it's hard to, to say the extent to which these challenger groups matter. At the same time, I think if you try to envision a world or a religious institution that has none, where those things are shut down, you can see that they probably, they have an important, they're important, even if they don't, even if the changes that they want are not completely embraced. Um, I think they do have an effect to some extent, you know, it depends. And you know what that effect is could also be um, a lot of people disengaging from that religious group. And and that's the other thing is right. We live in a pluralistic, many, many plural, we live in a pluralistic society in the United States where people have a lot of religious options but even in as in the case of Israel, right? If you are a homosexual Orthodox Jew and you decide and you you push for change for ten years and you get nowhere, you don't have to remain an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> you can become a conservative. You can become a reform. You can become secular, right? And so people have a lot of ways of resolving these contradictions individually. Well, you know, finally, Melissa, I want to ask you something very general and. and um... Which I personally been saying for some time now that um, I sort of I became somewhat alienated from religions altogether, and that is in my from as I see it, religion now and mostly in the last say fifty a century or so, but even uh, certainly before that even more much stronger than this, that the religion has become more of a burden than in and an asset. Do, do you see that, and to, to what extent do you think religions today is affecting our um, outlook uh, on life when, in fact, religions becoming? Uh, I mean, there's a there's a power involved in, in in the religious institution, and certainly they do not want to relinquish that power. But don't you think, on the whole, this is just just to sum to sum up uh, our discussion, on the whole, that religion has not been uh, use to uh, improve to to the betterment of humankind. I mean, that's what they claim. But I think its impact has not necessarily been as good, as useful, as productive, as beneficial as the religious institutions have and continue to claim. Yeah, I think that your question gets to at something that I've been struggling with in relationship to the implications of birth control battles. And that really is about whether 
the means justify the ends. Sorry, whether the ends justify the means. <laughs> That's what I meant to say. Yes. So, yes. So, and I think contraception is exactly the, a great place to really parse through that question because when you understand that the religious groups that liberalized on contraception first did so because they were deeply racist and classist and anti-immigrant. Yeah. When you believe, you know, is the, then do you reject the fact that they liberal, that they liberalized on contraception at all, that they pushed women's ability to access their own reproductive futures to determine their reproductive futures. Right. You know, I would say, no, I'm not saying that I think we should reject contraception because of the reasons why it was first promoted. Um, but I think we need to understand that, you know, religious institutions, they reflect and they, they also are determined by the other structures of inequality that exist in society. And that's really like the main theoretical argument that, that I have been pushing um, with all of my work. And that is to understand that religion deeply intersects with other structures of inequality. So class, race, ethnicity, it's one of the most homogenizing forces in the world. And you, and you have to think through the space specificity of a particular place to understand how that happens, but you can see the difference that you can see inequality happening and and ethnic differences happening in almost any society. It just just varies in terms of what the particular context is. So look at the difference between Sunni and Shia Muslims in different countries. That is tied up with ethnicity. That is tied up with class often, right? That is tied up with all kinds of other inequalities. And People will talk about it just as religious differences. It's not just religious differences, right? And so that's probably one of the things that I am trying to deal with theoretically more than anything else, which is understanding rather than think about is religion a good or a bad, think about the ways in which it is enmeshed with other social structures and think about the ways in which we want our society to change, to figure out what pressure points both the pressure points that religion could bring to improve society, but also the pressure points society can bring to improve religion. If, But to do so with the understanding that what we see as better now might be seen as really horrible a hundred years from now. You know, that's probably the other thing that I learned the most from my historical yeah. research, right? Is that the, the folks who promoted eugenics deeply believe that they were involved. They were the most progressive, the most educated, the most scientifically oriented Americans. They, they were very much convinced that they were involved in a progressive activity to the utter dismay, right, of their descendants. So that's, you know, I don't know that's if that's right. useful. I don't know if that's useful in any way. It's just maybe just a tale of caution, but. No, no, but but that's I think I think your take on it is, is on on spot. No, I agree with you. You know, we can continue this for for some time, but I'm really grateful to you for taking the time, and well, thank uh, you. hopefully I, I'm we'll really have grateful. another opportunity to. Sorry, to, to I, 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 I want to discuss. 
No, I, no, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, maybe for you know, sometime in the future we can discuss more thoroughly your your, your book on this particular subject and it's in connection with Catholicism in particular. I'm very much interested in that. Sure. Thank you, Melissa, again for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much and uh, stay safe and well. Thank you. All the best to you. Just the same. Okay. Bye, bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.